good to be here this morning. Sometimes this uh, medication I'm taking causes my throat to be a bit dry, so pardon that, if you will. Um, <clears throat> contrary to what's been said, appreciate the kind remarks, but um, I confessed to the group gathered yesterday that I have a great deal of ignorance on this subject, and I say that with, uh, with all absolute honesty. In the sense, when I say ignorance, uh, we sought yesterday to go over the biblical revelation of what's been given to us, at least some of it, on a very big subject, uh, the subject of uh, angelology and demonology. And um, I thought the Lord gave us some help. There were some very helpful insights from many of the gathered folks that were there, and the young people as well seemed to stimulate some thinking. But um, I certainly don't have a corner on that area of truth. Um, and I really protested, which I rarely do. I don't think I usually do. Maybe I do, but with uh, Malcolm about the subject that was my that fell on me, that it was my lot to take up, so to speak, uh, coming at this particular time. But nevertheless, I found that one of the things, and I've mentioned this before about this particular assembly, when you're following either the scripture format that you sometimes or more than often do or as you are now with a more of a topical approach of things, uh, it has forced me to take up things, thanks Bob, uh, that uh, I normally wouldn't take up. And that's not all bad. You have to get in and dig and do a little bit. So anyway, having said all that, I've really been thinking this morning and about this evening with only a short bit of time to address this really big subject, how to go about it. So um, we're going to look this morning at part of what we talked about, but not anything near the somewhat more in-depth study that we had yesterday. And you would do well, if you're a bit interested in that, to maybe get the, uh, the recordings of that and the handouts, because this morning it'll be much more broad in our approach. I'd like to look this morning at one particular aspect of not demonology in particular, but that subject in a broad way, and some of the strategies of Satan. Because we didn't really cover, and I didn't really look at the syllabus that much. I don't guess there was a particular study on Satan himself. But under that category of demonology, we um, could, could look at, at the enemy, at Satan, and look at what some of his strategies are. And that's what I want to do this morning in the will of the Lord. Now, having said that, I am reminded that uh, in this subject, and we want to turn to Ephesians chapter first, uh, Ephesians 6 first. We are... We should be very careful to seek what God has to say on this subject. There is One of the things I think we found out yesterday is that there is a lot of speculation about angels and demons. There is a lot of misunderstanding about angels and demons. Some of that and much of it has been generated by uh, religion. Some of it has been generated by superstition. 
Some of it has been generated by uh, sort of an admixture of some things the Bible says and then making more out of that than what is really there. And so you end up with things perhaps cemented in your thinking that are not true to the biblical revelation. Some of them are very simple, very basic, and yet it's surprising when you say them how many people think, hmm, I never really thought about that. For instance, yesterday, one of the things we discovered that according to biblical revelation, when it comes to angels, angels always are male. They always appear in a masculine form. And angels, whenever they appear in Scripture, never have wings. So you see right there, there's two things that are common conceptions that people have that are really not borne out by what the Scripture has to say. And that when children die, they don't go to heaven and become angels, you know, to replace uh, angels that have whatever is supposed to have happened to them. So there's a whole lot of things like that when you begin to think about them that uh, don't jive with what the biblical record has to say. And it's the same thing when it comes to Satan. Satan is not some character who runs around in red leotards, you know, with a pitchfork. Satan is not the ruler of hell. He is not the overseer of hell. When Satan ultimately is confined to the lake of fire... He will be every bit as much a prisoner as any of the other inhabitants are. He's not the ruler of hell who is uh, there over people who go to hell to torment them and to keep them captive. That's not a biblical concept. And so it helps us, doesn't it, to bring our minds to the Scripture and what the Scripture has to say. What happens also is that as these distortions of true biblical things become more and more prevalent, you, you can run the gamut from one end to the other, or you can run from one extreme to the other, of either saying, well, these things are all fanciful, and they're, they're not real, and they're just imaginative, and, and they're just a figment of people's uh, medieval kind of thinking. Or you can begin to see a demon or an angel <laughs> behind every bush, behind every action, behind everything and give yourself over too much over into the involvement of that area. Uh, Marguerite just brought me a a little uh, clip of a page ad that came out of one of the periodicals in the newspaper, I think it is, about a a new book that you can get. Now, you can't get it in bookstores. You've got to send your money in, you know, et cetera, on angels. You know, books on angels and demons... If I wrote a book on angels or demons, there's no doubt in my mind that I could make, you know, some bucks off of it or at least sell some copies. Isn't that interesting? Write a book about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this unique interest, isn't there, into what's considered to be the supernatural and to the spirit world and inquisitiveness about those things. But the focus of the New Testament is to direct us to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see something about that tonight, what Paul had to say to the Colossians, specifically about worshiping of angels. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, we find Paul, as he concludes this letter, in a sense going back to where he started. He starts off in chapter 1 in the heavenlies, and he ends up in the heavenlies, but quite a different contrast. 
not just the fact that we've been raised and seated with Christ in heavenly places, but he now says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places or in heavenly places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And then he goes on to describe what that armor of God is. You'll notice that he says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against human beings, ultimately, in that sense. It is a spiritual warfare that takes place against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, if you're not a believer in Christ, you really do have a lot to be afraid of. And one of the things, as we'll see this morning, Lord willing, is that one of the greatest tragedies is the deception that has taken place in your own mind. And I'll explain that a bit as we move along. Um, and the spirit world that is a reality, the, the biblical revelation is clear on this, that there are created beings besides mankind and humanity, that God had created a whole host of beings. Some of those beings fell, rebelled against the Almighty, and are in that fallen state. Others are not. But these created spiritual beings in different ranks, in different authorities, and some of these spirit beings, the demonic forces that are under the ruler of the, the power of darkness, as it says, and the influence of that power, um, are opposed to God, opposed to God's plan, opposed to God's truth, opposed to God's gospel, in opposition against God's people, and with the world that is unsaved, seek to keep you in darkness and blindness, lest you come to the understanding of who Jesus Christ really is and what your condition before God is and the scales be lifted off your eyes and you be able to see. And so in a sense, I want to say that because if you're not saved, if you don't know Christ as Savior, whether you realize it or not, you are in bad shape and you've got an enemy that's against your soul and you've got somebody that wants to destroy you who is of great spiritual power and influence, and it is a great reality. There are things that take place in our world and in our society that have no other really valid, legitimate, logical explanation other than the fact that they are uh, the result of wicked spiritual influences and powers that are beyond the pale of what we can see with our physical eyes. And so if you're not saved this morning, you are in a very dangerous position. Imagine you've got an enemy that you can't see with your physical eyes who is set for your destruction and like, would like nothing better than for you to leave this life without having trusted Christ as your Savior, because he opposes God. On the other hand, 
If you're a believer in Christ, one of the things that we tried to get hold of yesterday was the truth of what we're told in 1 John chapter 4, greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. This passage alone tells us that we still, as believers in Christ, have to apply the teaching of Scripture and the truth of Scripture in our own lives to be able to withstand against the, the, what are called the wiles of the devil or the strategies, the methods of the devil. But nevertheless, we do not have to fear Satan or his demons. We should have a healthy respect but at the same time, a respect because of the power that is out there and the, and the inherent dangers that are there. But at the same time, one of the things I think we saw yesterday, that the thrust of the New Testament epistles, which are the letters that are written to give us instruction who are believers in Christ, the thrust of those is not that we go around worrying about what demons are doing to us. And not that we go around worrying about how we're under you know, attack from demons for every little thing that comes up in our life. That the thrust of the New Testament is that we apply the Word of God and the truth of Scripture to our own personal lives, walk in that truth, and it becomes sort of an inherent safeguard against the attacks of the enemy. And so I want to say that at the very, at the very outset. A number of things that are said about the enemy, Satan. Now, first of all, this is the very root of the problem, and I think we ought to turn back there to the book of Isaiah just for a moment to refresh our thinking on this, or perhaps to make you aware of it if you aren't. Isaiah chapter 14. The one who is now known as Satan, the adversary, was one who was originally called Lucifer the day star. And in Isaiah chapter 14, you have the record of the fall of Lucifer. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. The five I wills of Lucifer. The first sin that ever entered into the universe was not the sin of the man and the woman in the garden. The first sin that ever entered into the world was the sin of Adam and of Eve. But the first sin that ever occurred in the universe was when this created being, who was the highest of all of the created beings that God had created, said in his heart, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend into heaven. I will be like the Most High. This is the first sin that ever entered into the universe. And it's very important that we understand that because when we look at the nature of, sin, of the sin, we see that the, the essence of it was pride. I will. I will. Not satisfied with the position that he had as the anointed cherub that covers. Remember in the visions we're given of 
biblical revelation in the scripture of God's throne, there surround the throne of God four winged creatures who are identified as cherubim. It is that sometimes, I think, that where we derive this concept or this uh, erroneous notion that angels have wings, cherubim have wings, seraphim have wings, but angels as they appear in scripture do not. But be that as it may, these cherubim, these four cherubim that surround the throne of God, at one time there were five. And the one that was over them all was called the anointed cherub that covers. Find that in Ezekiel chapter 28. And his name was Lucifer. So he was above the other cherubim. So if you imagine now in this sort of uh, uh, ranking, if you will, if you had sort of an organizational chart, at the top you have God, the throne of God. Directly underneath him you have Lucifer, the day star, who's the anointed cherub that covers over the other cherubim. And surrounding that throne you have these cherubim. So he had this high and lofty position. And underneath them were the other ranks of spirit beings that were created, angels and so forth. Not satisfied with that chief position, he wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to sit in the very throne of God. Now remember this because it's important, and it's one of the beauties of Scripture. Uh, when you begin to see how the Scripture is not just these sort of random pieces of things that are stuck together here and there that we try to make some sense out of, but that Scripture follows a very logical pattern, and what you see happening in one place you will find that pattern often repeated in other places as things sort of come full circle. So think in your mind now. Lucifer in the beginning said, I will be like the Most High. I will be like God. I will sit in the throne and be like God. I will take God's place. Do you know what's going to happen in the end of the age? In the time that the Bible describes as the time of tribulation? When there will appear on this world the one who ultimately is Antichrist. And Second Thessalonians tells us, as well as does the book of Revelation, that he will sit in the temple of God demanding to be worshipped as God. The world, according to Revelation chapter 13, will wonder after the beast. Who is like the beast? And he'll exalt himself to that exalted position, claiming to be God, demanding to be worshipped as God. What is the ultimate antidote to that? What will God do? There's a beauty in it. There's an irony to it in a sense. Satan says, I will be like God. I will force people to worship me. God says, I'll become a man. And I'll go to the cross. And I'll die for mankind. And because of their love for me, they will be loyal to me and worship me. You see the beauty of it. Satan seeks to exalt himself to be like God. God says... I will humble myself and become a man. <laughs> and 
And he defeats the enemy by the very work of the cross and the very method and strategy of the very death of the Son of God. It's no wonder Paul would say in the book of Romans, Oh, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. Who can search it out? (laughs) It causes him to just rise in his heart and worship and praise the Almighty for such a plan as that. And at the root of this sin of Lucifer in the beginning was pride. Pride. And it's still one of the great tools and strategies of the enemy this day. What does every false teaching in the area of religion say and strive to do? To make somehow man be like God. Or to make you as a human being become a God. Where's the root of that? Right back here. You see? In the original sin that entered into the universe. This was his beginning. This is his character. And as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, we are not ignorant of his devices. We're not ignorant of his strategies and how he seeks to operate. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians in chapter 4. In verse 3. If our gospel be hidden... It's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. One of Satan's strategies, one of his methods, one of the things that he does is to blind the minds of them that believe not. To pull the veil over it, sort of. We, we sometimes use an expression, pull the wool over somebody's eyes. In other words, cause them not to see the reality of what's really there. And we want to think about how it is that he blinds the minds of those that believe not the gospel. It should not surprise us when we seek to witness to people, when we seek to communicate to them the truth of, the, of God's gospel, it should not surprise us when folks say, well, I just can't see it. You might do well to turn to this verse and say, let me tell you why you can't see it. There's an enemy that doesn't want you to see it, and he's going to do everything within his power to blind your mind to the reality of the truth of the glorious gospel of Christ. And right there, don't you see his intention as well? If there was ever any question about what his intention is, why does Satan, why does he who is called the God of this world blind minds? He does not want them to embrace the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the very image of God. He wants to prevent that from happening, lest the light. He wants them to prevent that from occurring. So we are consciously aware that when we're preaching the gospel or when we're witnessing to people or when we're seeking to communicate God's truth, there is enemy opposition. Now let me hasten to say, Satan is not equal with God. 
again, a false religious notion prevalent in much Eastern religion of dualism, that there's this equality between good and evil, sometimes represented by the yin and the yang. You know, that, that the reason why evil exists at all is because God, if God were all-powerful, well, there wouldn't be any evil because he'd destroy it. Therefore, he can't be all-powerful because there is evil, and so the two must be uh, sort of on an equal footing. It's not true. We find that uh, discounted from what the Scripture says. Even in the book of Job, as Satan came as a subordinate to appear before God and give an account for what he'd been doing. He was uh, subject to the authority of God. But having said that, much of of religion in the world... um, What was I talking about? (laughs) Oh, yes, thank you. (laughs) I kind of lost my train of thought as I was thinking about the yin and the yang. But uh, I kind of yinged and yanged out on that one. But anyway... uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know whether it was the yin or the yang, but anyway, um, in this idea of the 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 equality of 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 good and evil that exists in much of the world. In other words, that Satan wants to to blind minds, lest the truth of God's glorious gospel should penetrate those minds. I completely lost the reason why I said that, but it may come back to it. It may not. It doesn't really matter at this point. Now, along that line, turn with me to 2 Corinthians while we're there in chapter 11. I know that never happens to anybody else, but occasionally it does to me. So, <laughs> Oh, I know why I want to say it now. And I wasn't going to move until I did, believe it or not. <laughs> I wanted to say that because one of the things we have to be aware of is Satan is not God. Satan is not, does not have the same characteristics, uh, attributes of God. He is not omnipresent. He is not able to be everywhere. He is limited by space, uh, spatial features unlike God. And that was the point of what I was trying to say. We do need to remember that. And we need to remember one other thing. Be very careful when you say... Uh, in your own thinking, Satan did this to me. Now, we could say that in a very broad way. But the reason why I say that is he has his underlings. When the Lord Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan came to him to tempt him. Now, I'm small potatoes, okay? Satan does not have to waste his time with me. He's got plenty of underlings that he can send to mess with me. I doubt very seriously that I rise to that level to where Satan himself comes to me. You follow what I'm saying? He's got plenty of people working under him, plenty of troops and so on, that take care of those that are on the lesser echelon of things. But remember that because although Satan is not uh, ubiquitous in that sense, he's not... Uh, everywhere and can't be, he's got the system set up, working under his control, got things sort of set up to operate like he would have it to be. So now in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, Paul says this, breaking in uh, at verse 13. 
For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is of no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. You see, here's where those medieval notions throw us off track. If you're looking for Satan to be some red being in leotards and a pitchfork and a long pointy tail, first of all, it sounds so ridiculous that most people today think, well, that's just nonsense. No, how about this? He appears in a pulpit, clothed in robes, dressed in a suit, with a Bible in his hand. Not as a hideous creature to tell you how you ought to go out and live wicked lives, but to tell you, you know, basically, people are good. And, you know, you just need to be the best you that you can be. And this thing about sin, I mean, if we tell people about sin, that just sort of, that just turns people off. They don't need to hear about that. They need to hear good things, righteous things, and how your good deeds, that can do it for you. And if you just be the best you you can be, and if you just love your neighbor, and if you just give money, and if you just do religious deeds... And nobody generally thinks that's a, that's a worker of Satan. That's exactly what he wants you to think or not think. The greatest area of influence, satanic influence, one of the greatest areas is in the area of religion. And not a vile religion seeking to cause you to live wicked, corrupt, vile, immoral lives. Perfectly happy if you live a good moral life without Christ or a religious life of good works without Christ, without being saved. What a deception. And how easy it is to blind the minds of people with that because there is this sense in folks, many people, they want to do good. They know they ought to do right. They should believe in God. And so this is one of his main strategies. He has his ministers. He has his doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit speaks expressly, specifically, that in the latter times, the times we're living in now, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And he goes on to describe some of the characteristics there. They will depart from the faith, from the true faith, and the reason why they'll do it, why they do it, is because there are seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, that seek to cause you to believe in false doctrine. Satan has his ministers. Satan has his strategies. Satan has his doctrines. Satan has his deception. 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, if you'll back up there. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which speaks ultimately of that Antichrist, the one we identify as the Antichrist, although he is not technically identified that way. He is Antichrist. In verse 4, he opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. The mystery of iniquity does already work. The Lord will destroy him, it says in verse 8, with the brightness of his coming. And listen to this in verse 9. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Signs, powers, and lying wonders. He's got his deceptions. He has his miracle workers. He's got his people who do things that are counterfeit of the real and the true to deceive people. Lying wonders and signs and powers. The Word of God says he is a liar and the father of lies. Now let me just mention a few of the strategies of the enemy and how he seeks, I believe, to blind the minds, particularly of those that believe not. But I want you to to note this, it, it will be much too easy for those of us who are saved to hear this and say, yep, that's what he does to those people out there. Unfortunately, those same strategies can have their effect in the lives and the thinking of believers as well. The God of this world who has this organized structure and system that has its influence on our thinking and which we have to guard against. One of the big ones, as I understand it, and let me just turn for a scripture for this, Hebrews chapter 12. I won't be able to go into any of these in any kind of detail, but just to briefly mention them, Hebrews chapter 12, which uses the example of Esau. who is called in verse 16 of Hebrews a profane person, a profane person. Now, we normally associate profanity with what people say, but this word comes from, um, well, in the Latin, it means that which is outside of the sanctuary, that which doesn't have anything to do with, quote, holy things. And so that word, as it's used here, means that, that Esau is a representative of one who didn't care anything about holy things. Therefore, he was profane. There used to be this distinction made, at least in people's minds and thinking, that which was sacred and that which was profane. That which was profane was outside that which was sacred. And Esau was a person who didn't care anything about that which was sacred or that which was holy. 
You say, well, I'd never be guilty of that. What was the root of what, why Esau didn't care for those sacred things? Because Esau sacrificed the eternal on the altar of the temporary. Esau, listen to the poignancy of how the the scripture describes it. For one morsel of meat, he sold his birthright. For one bite of beans, he sold his birthright. Why? The birthright involved a number of things. It was what was given to the firstborn. It was like the inheritance. It was the the promise that was wrapped up, that was given by the father to pass on to that firstborn as Esau was. The problem was, it wasn't any good, was it? Until, or at least until the father died, sometime in the future. And Esau was a person who says, man, I'm not interested in that stuff, you know, that stuff that's later. I'm only interested in immediate gratification. Feed me that red stuff. I'm hungry now. And because he was primarily concerned only with what would satisfy him in the immediate with no regard for anything future, the Bible says he was a profane person. You don't think the enemy has that set up in this world in which we live in? To focus your attention and your mind, your thinking and your time and your resources? Face it, you can't see heaven, can you? Not with a physical eye. You can't taste it. You can't smell it. But it's real. And the tension that you live as a believer and I live as a believer is that we're governed by the place that we can't see. It influences us more. It should influence us more than what we can see. And yet we have to live in the world that we can see and touch and feel. And have to function in. And work in. And live in. But which world holds the greatest power over our lives? And thinking. And functioning. And if you're not saved, there's the lie, isn't it? Live for the now. Get what you can get out of it now. What matters is now. Don't think about later. You got plenty of time for that. It's a lie of the enemy. The present over the future. Let me tell you one more. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel in chapter 15. First Samuel in chapter 15. have time to go into the account you remember that Saul was given a command to obey and he disobeyed the command the prophet Samuel comes to him says in verse 22 
Hath the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. One of the great lies that the enemy seeks to perpetrate and promote is that sin doesn't matter much. Sin and disobedience don't matter much. It's interesting. It didn't really come to me until I was looking at this verse, but that Samuel says this in verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? And I was thinking... um, It seemed to me that it was David who had something to say about the burnt offerings and sacrifices and what God would accept. If you don't think sin matters, read Psalm 51. See what it did in the life of David. Read the story of David and see. It always has consequences. You know, you can be saved. And forgiven. And God sometimes is merciful even then. And you don't suffer the consequences of many of the actions that you have done. Not always the case. My current condition is a result of consequences. Of a lifestyle lived before. Outside of Christ. And in the world. Saved. And yet, 35 years later, consequences. We don't always see that side, do we? We don't always think about it. But it is a great reality, and it's still true. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Be not deceived, the Scripture says. You sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, spiritual things, life everlasting. Young people, sin matters. It matters so much that it took the death of the Son of God to deal with our sin. It takes the work, the priestly work of Christ, to continue to sustain us in this life and to keep us to the very end. Sin matters. And sin matters if you're not saved because it will send you to that lake of fire where one day Satan will also be forever. That place that was originally prepared for the devil And his angels, but there's nowhere else for those who reject God and his son in this life. There's no second chance, and there's no doing it over again. If you reject him in this life, sin does matter. And then there's so many more, but I want to just briefly bring out one that's found in the New Testament in the book of James. It would be familiar to you, I'm sure, but... I'm going to close with this one. James in chapter 4. Verse 14. Well, I'll back up for sake of context to verse 13. Go to now. Come on now. You that say today or tomorrow, 
will go to such a city, continue there a year, buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. What is your life? It is even a vapor. It appears for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that and so on. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Poof. Like the fog that settles down in the, in the evening, in the morning, and the sun comes and begins to warm and burns that fog off. It's gone just like that. Let me tell you one of the biggest lies of the devil. I can summarize it in one word. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yes, I know I need to do that, and I'm going to take care of that tomorrow. Later. Yes, I know that my life is not what it should be, and there's things that I need to deal with, and I'm going to do that tomorrow. Yes, God has spoken to me, and I know I should be saved. I know I'm not saved. I know I don't have Christ, and I know I need to be saved, and I'm going to one day. I tell you, that's one of the most effective strategies that the enemy has. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And for those of us who are believers in Christ, listen, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Now is the time. And the time is short. And it's closer than it has been (laughs) before. Don't be deceived. By thinking tomorrow. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, the Lord Jesus came to defeat the works of the enemy. He entered into the very realm, on the very turf of enemy territory. The one who is known as the God of this world. The prince of the power of the air. And the Lord Jesus came to this very earth into enemy territory And through his work on the cross, defeated him who had that authority holding in bondage all their lifetime, those through fear of death. And when he rose, he went right through enemy territory, right through the prince of the power of the heir's domain. Satan could not stop him. The demons could not hold him back. And they had no righteous claim to protest as the Son of God, Son of Man, bodily rose from the dead and ascended through that very territory to be seated at the very right hand of the Majesty on high. And for those of us who get saved, it's so graphic, Father, as the Scripture describes what has happened to us, we have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness, taken out, strong-armed out, and placed into the kingdom of the very Son of your love. Taken out from under that authority of the enemy. And Father, he's still effective as an enemy. He still has his strategies. We must take on the armor to effectively stand against the strategies of the devil. We don't want to maximize what he can do more than what the Scripture says, nor do we want to minimize it. 
We are thankful that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We're thankful for the indwelling spirit of God who gives us that power. We're thankful for the word of God which enables us to be able to discern what's true and what's false. And Father, if there are any here grappling right now with spiritual decisions, be it in the area of salvation or in the area of what their Christian life ought to be, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day. We have no guarantee that we'll live to see tomorrow, but in Christ we have a guarantee that our future in him is secure. Help us, we pray. May the Spirit of God take the truth of the Word of God And apply it to hearts, we pray. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.